you have your Bible, would you turn please to 2 Kings chapter number 4, and uh, I don't usually use these, am I hooked up okay? Okay, good. 2 Kings chapter number 4, it's a real privilege to be with you today. I knew um, Dave, Dr. Dave Luthie, here, uh, one of the former pastors here, and he preached at our, our church, mostly at the Baptist, uh, Tidewater Baptist Fellowship meetings. We hosted those once a year and had um, Dr. Dave preach, always gave excellent messages and such a good man. Really enjoyed Dr. Dave Luthie. And then John Turner, his successor, he told me about John and I've had opportunities to hear John and, and uh, know him some and I think you have a really good pastor in John Turner and that's a real privilege to fill in for you. And I'm looking forward to, to connecting with him some more and, and possibly you guys some more also. It's a real, real privilege to be here. Um, your Bible was open to 2 Kings 4. We were going to look at one of the longer narratives in 2 Kings. We're going to look at verses 8 through 37. And uh, the, the points and the uh, lasting principles of this rather long narrative are, are numerous. And, and just out of curiosity, I wonder how many of you have been saved uh, over, over 20 years? Raise your hand. You've been saved over 20 years. Okay, look around. That's a, how many have been saved over 30 years? Raise your hand. That's still, okay. I only ask you that because... Uh, you have, if you've been saved a long, a, a while, you've heard this passage before, and, and this is one, if you've been raised in a church, a, a, a reasonably Bible-believing church, you've seen this in story form, the Shunammite woman and, her, and so on. So this, uh, this narrative about the Shunammite has been uh, developed in sermons and, and uh in countless directions and applications and emphases. And uh, many of those, I suppose, are good. Uh, I, I read the commentaries, even though I prepared this message a couple years ago and have given it our church a couple years ago. Um, I reread the commentaries this week, um, enjoying not have, uh, having some extra time. So I reread them, and sure enough, uh, Many different commentators take this passage in many different directions. But I think the, um, there's, a con there's a central controlling emphasis in this passage into which all the, the details of the story flows, and it is the points and emphases flow into the awesome entrance that the mother makes at the end of the chapter. I think that's where it culminates and that's where uh, we get the major application from it, or I think we could call it that, the major application. There's applications all through. Now this passage, um, I'd like to speak to you on this subject from this passage, the awesome entrance of the Shunammite. I believe that you have an even more awesome entrance than she has. I believe that. I strongly believe that. 
And if I explain this passage right, um, and you hear it right, I think this passage should help us uh, go forward in, in what we have uh, told to us in Romans 15, 13, which says, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Dear people, that is to be normative living, abounding in hope, regardless of who's in the White House, abounding in hope. This passage will help you with that. Then this one, um, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dearly beloved, be ye steadfast. Really means become steadfast. Always abound, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know your work in the Lord is not in vain. Now, those things should rise to you if we get this passage right. One thing before we read the passage, one more thing, is this, the Shunammites experience that you'll read about, that the Spirit of God wants you to read about in narrative form. He really wants you to follow her, sit with her, be with her, feel with her. This is a, very, a passage full of extreme feeling. Well, true redemptive experience has extremes in it. And I believe I'm talking to people, I don't think, uh, who, are, who are genuine believers, who are seeking to be complete in all the will of God. And I don't think you would come to a, pa a church pastor by John Turner or David Luthy if you weren't interested in serious, complete uh, walking in, in New Testament and Old Testament redemption. And I just want to tell you this, do not be surprised if your experience is extreme. I would say be surprised. I'm surprised if your experience is not extreme. Let's read the passage. Look at verse number eight. And it's a long passage, so we'll take it in sections. Just one more thing. I asked Brother John, I said, John, what version do you use? He said, we use the King James. I've read the King James through dozens of times, literally, all the way through. And I love the, the 1769 King James Version. But this morning, I'm using the new King James. He said, that won't be a problem to anyone here. Amen. I have a reason for doing that, and I can't go into it right now. But... Um, if you want to ask me later, I'll tell you later. But I can't go into it now. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem. There was a notable woman. And she constrained him to eat some food. So it was as often as he passed by that he turned in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, look now. I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. 
So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he, and he said to him, that is to Gehazi, say now to her, look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. So he said, what is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually she has no son and her husband is old. And he said, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace his son. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. And the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. I have this divided into three simple points, and the first one is this, that the experiences of, God, of God's people are seemingly almost too good to be true. Sometimes, and I, I think I'm speaking to people who can page back through your mind and, and think of th ways and times and circumstances in which God has blessed you so much you can hardly believe it. How amazing. Well, would you notice, uh, we have here the, introduced to us in this passage one of the main characters in this narrative, and uh, she's called, in your 1769 King James Version, a great woman. And people have different ideas of what is meant by great there. Um, the New King James just says, a notable woman. And uh, probably, she, what I'd like for you to point out this morning is she was a redeemed person working out her salvation, what God was working in, and she was like you in that respect. If you are a healthy person in Christ, what's happening in you is you are working out what Christ is work, was working in. She's, uh, when it talks about her being great, and it's probably not talking about her weight, very unlikely, or her height. Probably she is a wealthy person. She is apparently wealthy. And, um, and also deeply spiritually minded, somewhat uh, a combination with pleasant possibilities. She's, she is, it's evident, she's certainly not a poor woman, but she is notable in this respect that she is uh, from a wealthy household and she is a deeply spiritual person just remind you that at this time Jezebel was still alive. Uh, the country is headed back in the right direction under uh, Elijah, Elijah had uh, rectified many things and Elisha is rectifying more things 
but, the st but there's not that many spiritual people around. And she is notable in this respect. She, this woman is respectful toward her husband. As, you, as we read here, you'll see that he safely trusts in her. Proverbs 31 talks about Mrs. Farba Ruby's, her husband safely trusts in her. And the law of kindness is in this woman's mouth. Just everything that practically that comes out is, is full of kindness and thoughtful graciousness toward other people. She's, an ex, she's a notable woman. She's frank. She's direct. And would you notice, possibly you notice there that it says she constrained Elisha to come into her and eat in the house with them. She constrained him, that is. Uh, she, um, she's a direct person. She's pretty frank and uh, constrained him. And uh, yet, on the other hand, this woman also, she's a spiritually discerning person. She really studies his comfort and says to her husband, let's build him a little room on the wall that is apart from our dwelling. And this is undoubtedly for his, for his comfort and for his um, best rest and his best renewal. And so he can come and go without having to go through the house. And, and uh, you know that the greetings over there could be endless. And you could want to, it would just be a blessing often to, for, to be able to exit, to go where he's going without having to go through the house and greet everyone, and so on. This woman, and that, that's not reading into the passage. No, she, she studied out what would be good for him, and she arranged it, and it came to pass. Well, um, he, she wanted him to be able to be comfortable, renewed, welcomed, well-fed, and uh, that she could come and go, he could come and go from his room without obstacle. Well, uh, Elisha probably visited this home uh, fairly often while the boy grew. So he had been going, it, it says he went by there um, uh, often. He went by that she says to her husband, that's a holy man of God that keeps coming by here. And he made this, this journey uh, repeatedly and I uh, was delighted with the room. And um, so afterwards, the baby, here's the baby. And now um, try and put yourself in this woman's place. The idea that she would have a baby was astonishing to her. And she just said, um, don't lie to me. You know, she thought it might have, is, is he a jester? Uh, no, he's not a jester. And to her, and if you put yourself back perhaps in Eastern culture, uh, a, a, a woman without a, a child at that time, um, and then to have one so unexpectedly would be almost too good to be true. I mean, that's really what she's saying, isn't it, in verse 16? No, 
my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Now, it sounds too good to be true. But it was true. And the baby came. And he kept coming. And he came. Elijah came that way. And he, he knew the little fellow. He probably saw him when he was one, when he was two, when he was three, when he was four. And I'm not sure how, how, how long, much longer, how old he is when, the, when he dies. But Elisha was in that house often. Right, now, now I want to ask you a question to try to engage your mind a little bit here. Um, so Elisha is in her home. The little boy is there. What are they talking about? They talked about something. What were they talking about? Now this isn't a, uh, uh, a fundamental of the faith. But what, you, you know, you, you, you guys have hospitality. You have people over. You have your, your in-laws and, your, and you have uh, grandchildren and so on. And you have neighbors. So what do you talk about? Especially once you're, you're more spiritual uh, relatives and neighbors and friends. What do you talk about? So what do you think they talked about? Well, Elisha probably told her a lot about what's taking place, about his work, and I bet they talked a lot about what took place on the farm, uh, on, the, on the premises, and they, they, they understood each other's circumstances and, and situation. They took, they're familiar. And um, it must have been a charming, heartwarming uh, spot for Elisha. And it must have been a delightful anticipation for the Shunammite to say, you know, Elisha said he's coming back in next month, and um, we're looking forward to it. Would you look at your Bible now? We come to, so that's the first thing. And here, here you have experiences that are seemingly almost too good to be true. This woman's life was delightfully complete from her point of view. Would you look now at verse 18? So the child grew. We don't know how old, but from the way it's told, he's not that big. Now it happened one day that when that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to a servant, carry him to his mother. And his mother had taken him and brought him, when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees until noon and then died. And that brings us to the second thing, and that is this. The experiences of the true people of God are sometimes too bad to be permanent. This can't be permanent. And they're not. But, but try, would you? Sit with her as she's holding this cherished unexpected, dear, God-given little one, and on her lap, the baby died. 
You know, with the Spirit of God, when he wrote this, put this in the scripture, he wants you to sit with her, as it were. Try and feel what she's feeling. Look at verse 20. He sat, the little fellow, on her knees till noon and then died. Well, uh, unexpected. This is a this is a body blow she's not ready for. Those come to us, don't they? You may, we may have bunches of those on the way in our country. Bunches. And the truth of it is that, that God appoints these things for his own, for his own reason. But let's look at... Um, Ponder the astonishing composure of this woman. Here is a woman with a God-focused mind. Really, she's one of the few normal people on the planet at that time. She's a God-focused woman. And she, and she just had what was a gift from God to her die on her lap. Would you look please at verse 21? And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him and went out. And she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, Why are you going to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, it is well. Then, he, then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. It's about 15 miles away by donkey. And, and, and so it was that when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite woman. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet but Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone. For her soul is in deep distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And we'll just, we'll stop there momentarily. Notice this woman's um, astonishing composure, at least up to this point. Um, Notice there's no funeral arrangements made. No disclosure of the death. There's no deceit here. There's just timely discretion not to, to say more than need to be said to the husband. Notice there's no hysterical outbreak. 
for many, in many cases, there would be hysteria, wouldn't there? No hysteria here. No hysterical outburst despite the deep inward distress this lady's in. And she is in, this, look, this is a godly woman. This is probably one of the best women in Israel. This is probably one of the top half of 1% of the women on the whole planet at the time. Would you notice, please, she's in deep distress. Deep distress. Well, uh, she goes to see Elisha. Elisha is way more than a preacher. Elisha is the leading prophet in Israel. He communicates the mind of God to people about many things. In this case, Elisha humbly confesses, I don't know what's wrong. One time my mantle, or Elisha's, I used Elijah's mantle and it split the Jordan. I'll send Gehazi with my staff. Maybe, that, maybe my staff will bring the little fellow back. He sent Gehazi with the staff, nothing happened. There's a lot, the commentators have a lot to say about Gehazi and the staff, but we can't park there. It just didn't work. It wasn't God's plan. It was for God's plan for Elijah himself to come down there. I've mentioned that there's no outburst, there's no hysteria, at least not yet. But look, if you would, please, at this excellent woman in verse number 28. Even the best of God's people, even in the best of God's people, there are great storms of inward deep distress. Possibly you're in one now. Doesn't it say in 1 Peter 1.6, if needs be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And then Paul tells the Gentiles, look, you're on the right track. But we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. And doesn't Psalm 34 say the afflictions of the righteous are few or many? Which? Many. Maybe you're in one. Maybe your faith is being tested right this morning or this past week. You have, uh, there are no cheap crowns. Blessed is the man that endureth, blessed is the woman that endureth testing. When he is tried, she is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which God has promised to them that love him. The grammar is when it says he's promised him the crown of life, it means the crown consisting of life now. Enduring your trial. That, that's for those who love the Lord, endure their trials. But this is a hard thing. I mentioned at the beginning, Christian experience is extreme experience. If you are a true regenerate person, I'm not surprised that you're shocked 
at the brazen attacks of the powers of darkness. The Bible says we wrestle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities. That's real. The wrestling's real. It's up close. It's painful. So, here is extreme experience. They have, this woman has a dead son. And she is doing, this woman is exemplary in everything, but would you notice now we have in verse 28, and, and she comes to Elisha, and even the best people can only hang on so long. Look at, we're at 2 Kings 4. Look at 2 Kings 4, verse 28. Notice what she says. You may have said something about this in your time of distress. As you uh, young folks have vowed to tell the Lord, Lord, you can have my body, whatever you want in my life. I'm agreeable. Here it is. And, and you meant it, and you're doing it until something really, a really nasty, unexpected curve comes in. You said, I was not ready for this. Would you look, please, at verse 28? She's at, her, at Elisha's feet, and this is what she says. And she said, did I ask a son? Of my Lord, did I not say to you, don't deceive me? And she said it with feeling. She's got a dead baby, a dead baby boy lying on a bed that she made for that prophet. Would you notice, please, in this verse 28, look at it carefully, would you? She reproves Elisha. That's plainly what she's doing. She's not just reproving Elisha, she's reproving God as well. She reproves Elisha and Elisha's God for having forced on her an unasked blessing. In other words, what you're looking at there is an excellent believer under trial with wild words, as Alexander McLaren says, produced by wild grief. That happens. I mentioned to you, I'd like to, if you turn on Joel Olstein, he'll tell you something different, but I'm going to tell you the truth, and he won't tell you the truth. True redemptive experience includes great blessings, almost too good to be true. And true redemptive experience includes deep distresses that are practically unbearable. That is the truth, dear people. You're on a pilgrimage. You are pilgriming, you are sojourning through what Galatians one four calls this present evil age. 1769 says, 
this present evil world a little clearer, this present evil age. Everyone in it has suffered a complete fall. Jesus said the devil is the prince of this world. That's a political title. Paul called him the god of this world. That's a religious title. And we know that the whole world, 1 John 5, 19 says, lieth passively in the wicked one. That's what kind of world you're in. And so some of your experiences will be, yes, a table spread for you in the presence of your enemies. But you've got enemies too. And they're not always as at bay as we would like them to be. Notice, please, wild words, the Shunammite in verse 28 is clearly reproving Elisha and Elisha's God. Well, how does heaven respond to wild words so out of character? from a usually well-composed child of God. And look at Elisha. He represents God here. And he's very patient. And he discerns beneath these wild words there is a deep misery and the petition he discerns shrouded in that, in that misery. She is, don't body language communicates that she's at his feet. And she's in a quandary. She's not in complete rebellion, but she has just been overwhelmed. Deep distress. There's a lot of people like that. You know, there are many true godly husbands who married a wife they thought was also a godly person and found out later she was not. There are many true godly women who followed all the rules, all the advice, and married a person they thought was a godly man and found out he was not. And they have broken hearts. And there are people who have been double-crossed in business. And dear people, we have a government, and I'm not going to go aside to politics except just to say, I hardly need to say this, you see it here, and the hypocrisy and the evil and the hatred, it's here. Romans 8, we read from, it also says we are, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's in Romans 8. That's a hard thing. Sometimes God's children, his best children down here, have just un extremely deep distress. Folks, don't despise. You're going to see how this comes out in just a minute. Don't despise it. Don't bail out. Learn from the Shunammite. And how does heaven respond to, here is a true child of God that's just really off course now. It's never right to reprove God and tell him he's messing up your life. That's never, never okay. Well, 
Let, we should not forget that Elisha himself was mentored by one who uttered wild words himself, no less a man than Elijah, Elijah, and he, he himself was overloaded. Or maybe he, he wasn't taking all the grace he should have, but in any case, you're aware that Elijah himself left his place of duty and just asked the Lord to kill him. He said, Lord, I want to die. And the Lord said, oh. so how does God respond to those? You know, how many of you think sometimes you have prayed some pretty foolish prayers? You're glad God did not answer. Say amen. amen. I'm glad God doesn't answer all our prayers. And I'm, God, I'm glad that heaven responds in supernatural patience toward us. He's called the God of patience. If you're living in union with him, that should be happening to you more. You older believers should be more patient, shouldn't you? Well, she is out of, this is not what you do. You don't charge God and call him, say, you messed up my life. Wrong. Well, God overruled Elijah's prayer and said, no, Elijah, we're not taking you home yet. You got more work to do, and I'm going to fix you. And he restored him. And, and, and so that's, Elisha himself surely under, knew, knew what happened to his mentor, that his mentor had his chinks in his armor too, his failures. And I like what McLaren says here. God is no less tender in his judgment of our hasty wild words when our hearts are sore if we speak them to him while clinging to his feet. You know, that it is true she's saying all the wrong things, and most of us would have caved in earlier. But notice he translates them into petitions. God does not take it as an insult. He translates it into a petition. And that brings us to the last thing. Would you look, please, at verse 32? 2 Kings 4.32. And when Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house, and again went up and, and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. We'll, we'll stop there just momentarily. And this, the last thing I want to point out to you is this. God's people have in their future incomparable glory that passes understanding. I liked your song this morning. I never saw this, the gospel song. What an excellent song. I want to pause here and ask you, 
what is the gospel? This is an Old Testament passage we're reading, but I'm going to point out to you in a minute, I think it's loaded with principles that apply right up to the present time and into the future. But I asked this at our church last week, and what is the gospel? And you could answer that correctly in a number of ways. Here's, a, here's one way you could answer the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is an authoritative report concerning what Jesus Christ has accomplished in our stead. As your gospel song says, God came forth, a perfect man. And he accomplished in our stead, or the place of sinners. He's accomplished. He's finished the faith. He's lived out our righteousness, taken our curse, and he himself has finished it when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down, finished at the right hand of God. He finished our salvation, so he can now give us a full, complete reconciliation. That is what you get when you believe on Christ. A full reconciliation, not just you to him, that's of course that, but it's the whole, it's all of creation is reconciled. You're a partaker of the whole new era that's coming, and the whole new era is coming. Your future, if you are a true believer, your future is, is has glory, incomparable glory that passes understanding. But I do want us, in conclusion, to try and grasp some of it. What do you make of Elijah's unusual, up-close, personal intercession? There's a lot that could be said about it, but this is what would be a good thing to take away from that. What is really being, you're looking at the representative of God closely identifying. It, look, it can't get any closer, can it? Eye to eye, mouth to mouth, hand to hand. He's up. And what it really is pointing toward is when God himself will take flesh and come so close to us that Ephesians 5, I think it's 30 or right around there, says we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. With the God-man. Folks, do we believe that? That is what your salvation includes, union with Christ. And he came forth and he that his incarnation was labor for him. It wasn't passive. It was labor. He walked up and down. He that saith, I know him, ought to walk, even as he walked. Well, he walked. And that's what you're seeing there is really the incarnation of Christ pointed where he will come and join a fallen race so intimately. That is intimate, isn't it? Right on top, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, hand to hand. That is how, that is how close, that is how personal, real redemptive experience is. Elijah's was a miracle needing effort. The incarnation on your behalf was a rigorous effort. 
Would you notice how this concludes? Elisha is gentle and dignified, and he sends Gehazi. So look at end of verse 35. The child opened his eyes, and he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite woman. So he called her. I wonder what she was expecting. Was she expecting... I don't think she knew for sure. She might have been said, you're going to have to go get a shovel. But that's not what she heard. I think what she heard is, is what you're going to hear. And notice what happens. With beautiful delicacy, he lets her go in. He called her. And when she, verse 36, came to him, he said, pick up your son. Now you're supposed to, this is a long narrative, and you're supposed to feel with her. You're supposed to feel with her at the beginning when, when she has this unexpected announcement, you're going to have a baby. She says, that can't, don't lie to me. I can't believe it. Oh, yeah. You're going to have one. Then you're supposed to feel with her. At noon, the baby died on her lap. You know, there are believers today who maybe on the outside look okay. But I want to remind you, redemptive experience has extreme up and downs. And some of those people are really in distress. They're just, there are there are believers who, who live in distress. Some of this is God-appointed. I realize many of these things we can bring on ourselves. But this one here is, is God-appointed. And so, would you notice, um, go, go in with her as she makes her awesome entrance. What is she thinking when she goes in and says, that baby was died at noon, and he's alive. I, what was going on in this woman's mind, in her heart, in her emotions? It would be an awesome entrance. And would you notice that she, first of all, fell at Elisha's feet and bowed to the ground? She knew he's alive. It's a miracle. Can you believe it? In other words, and then she went in, picked up her son, and went out. Now, try to put this together some. In the, that morning, that little fellow was normal and healthy. He went out to the fields to assist and died at noon. By the evening, she just took up right where she left off. Now, I want to apply this to you. Because I, I think you have an awesome entrance. No, I don't think. I know. Every person here this morning has an astonishing entrance and it's not that far off. And it will be either it is more glorious than this or more despairing than anything this woman felt. So let me try to explain that in, in conclusion. 
we um, have used this book at our church some, possibly some of you have heard of it. It's called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. How many of you have heard of a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn? Raise your hand. I know some of it has some conjecture necessarily, but the majority of it is is well interpreted and exegeted and so on. Um, Some of it, of course, is conjecture. But he has, what about our children? Lots of you ladies have had miscarriages. What about the people who have gone on before us? You know, the Bible says this mortal must put on immortality. This corruption must put on incorruption. It must. It will. There will be a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. Now, what will this be like? You could try and... I think this story is in the Bible, and it points you... He wants you to feel with her, sit with her, be astonished with her in all the different directions. But the whole Bible is a story of redemption and it's pointing toward the New Testament fulfillment of it. I don't think I'm reading reading into that more than is there. If you just turn back a chapter or two, you'll find Elisha himself parted right up to heaven. Elisha saw him, possibly others saw him. I mean, he was here and he was gone. And Elisha was in awe of that. So I don't think it's straining this and, uh, to, to apply it to the upcoming, your upcoming death. So is your life a vapor? How many believe it's right to call your life a vapor that appeareth for a little while? Say amen. It's right. Your vapor's here for a little while. Those of you with gray hair or no hair, Your vapor is a little, it was already a little vapor, and I just want to remind you, it's even smaller now. This is little. Down here is little. Our, bra- our light affliction, that is what he called it, which is but for a moment worked it for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. I got this from the Heaven Book. What about our children? Alcorn says there's every reason to believe we'll pick up right, we'll pick right up in heaven with the relationships from earth. I believe that. See that woman? In the morning, the little kiddo was okay. At noon, he died. Died. He was dead all that. And in the evening, through this, you have to admit, it is unusual intercession, isn't it? She just took up, didn't she just take up with him right where she began that morning? And for you, I think Alcorn is right. There's every reason we'll pick up in heaven with relationships from earth. We'll gain many new ones, but we'll continue to deepen the old ones. I think we'll ex- we will especially enjoy connecting with those we, we face tough times with on earth, saying, did you ever imagine heaven would be so wonderful? He said this about a radio preacher speaking about a Christian woman whose Christian husband died, said, little did she know that when he hugged her 
When she hugged her husband that morning, she would never hug him again. Alcorn says, the preacher's words were not true. He could have said she'd never hug her husband in this life. Or better, she would not be able to hug her husband again until the next world. Because, the coming, because of the coming resurrection of the dead, we will be able to hug each other again on the new earth. Some might say, we all know what the preacher meant. But Alcorn says, but I'm not sure we really do, or he really did. I'm not trying to be picky, he says, but we need to carefully reform our vocabulary about what's actually true. Your future is indescribably glorious. Most of your salvation is ahead of you. That's what our, our hope is. John Wesley said about, our, about why people should be Methodists. We would take a little exception with that. We're independent Baptists, but we have a high regard for Mr. Wesley. But I like what Mr. Wesley said about his people. He said, our people die well. Read the news. Listen. Read the prophetic scriptures and listen to John Wesley. Dear young folks, I want to tell you one of the reasons you should be a confirmed believer with assurance of your salvation. Not necessarily that everything will go the way you want it. You could read this story and some things went delightfully well for this dear woman. This dear woman was in bitter agony, but I would want to remind you this. God's true people die well. You know, that I, I think people are going to be so wonderfully astonished when they, at the resurrection. I do. I think they're going to be astonished. You're going to be astonished at what God has been doing in your life. These efforts you've made and you have made them to serve the Lord, I realize our efforts leave quite a bit to be desired, but they're there. In a church like this, there are people who today are resolved to be kind to the people you live with for Jesus' sake. You're, you're committed to edification. You're thinking of ways how you can build up your church you're going to be astonished at the glorious entrance waiting for you. I conclude with this, however. This is a, a little, another Alcorn book. I'm not promoting Al, Alcorn because he's my favorite author. I, I think he's just done the church a good service in pointing people to said, look, you need to think about what the blessed hope the age to come, the world to come, the restoration of all things that you're going to enjoy in a body on the earth. And that's, look, people, that's not, that's not at the fingertips of the, of, of the average evangelical believer. It's just not. Listen to them. You won't hear them. You do not hear him talking about anticipating the glories of the world to come. Well, my suggestion is Alcorn can help you uh, a lot 
to, uh, and I think if once you, he helps you some, you, you don't need his help. You read the scripture and say, I see it there. But I want to conclude with this one illustration. And this is um, my friend Ruthanna Metzger, a professional singer, tells a story that illustrates the importance of having our names written in the book of life or making your calling and election sure. That's an imperative. You're supposed to do that. She was asked to sing at the wedding of a very wealthy man. The wedding reception was to be held on the top two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower, the Northwest's tallest skyscraper. Ruth Anna and her husband Roy were excited about attending. At the start of the reception, the bride and groom approached a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. Someone ceremoniously cut a satin ribbon draped across the bottom of the stairs. And the bride and groom ascended, followed by their guests. At the top of the stairs, outside the door to the great banquet room, the maitre d' stood holding a bound book. May I have your name, please? I'm Ruth Anna Metzger. This is my husband, Roy. He searched the M's, not finding it. Would you spell it, please? Ruth Anna spelled her name slowly. After searching the book, the maitre d' looked up and said, I'm sorry, but your name isn't here. There must be some mistake, Ruth Anna replied. I'm the singer. The gentleman answered, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend the banquet. He motioned to the waiter and said, show these people to the service elevator, please. The Metzgers followed the waiter past beautifully decorated tables laden with shrimp, whole smoked salmon, and a magnificent carved ice sculpture. Adjacent to the banquet area, an orchestra was preparing to perform the musicians all dressed in dazzling white tuxedos. The waiter led Ruthanna and Roy to the service elevator, ushering them in, put press G for the parking garage. After driving several miles in silence, Roy reached over and put his hand on Ruthanna's arm. Sweetheart, what happened? When the invitation arrived, I was busy, Ruthanna replied. I never bothered to RSVP. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I thought, I, surely I could go to the reception without returning to RSV, RSVP. There's going to be a, a lot of surprises. We read about this Shunammite woman and was hurt when she entered that room and saw her, her son alive. It was an awesome entrance. Her whole being reverberated with praise, with wonder that passes understanding. Yours will be greater than that. Yes, it will. How do you know you're saved? This is a great thing to know these days.
what constitutes, and I'm not going to go into it, but what constitutes a biblical assurance that you are a new creature in Christ? Dear people, we need that for our sakes, and I assure you, the religious confusion that we are living in, you're needed. Someone like you with a clear, who goes to a Bible-believing church with a clear grasp. The important thing in life is to know the Prince of Life and to have assurance. Now, and I think that's where we should conclude this morning. How many of you are sure, really sure, that your name's in the book of life, you're a new creature in Christ. Say amen. I'm sure about it. Now look, if you're not sure, tell the Lord, Lord, I'm not sure, and I want to be sure. There's nothing wrong with that. There's everything right about that. Let's bow for prayer. If, you're if you know you're a Christian, would you just thank the Lord Jesus for shedding his blood for you? And would you thank him for the, the wonderful blessings he's brought to your life? And would you be so bold as to thank the Lord for the tribulations he sent you? And hasn't he sent you some tribulations? You ever thank him for those? Our Heavenly Father, we come and, and do thank you for the many blessings, the peace that passes understanding. And Lord, we do thank you that you have sent to us tailor-made trials for each one of us. And we pray that we would come out like the Shunammite. And we pray you would forgive us for we have been grumbling and unbelieving and even sinning with our mouth against you. And we pray you would increase our faith through what we've looked at this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.